G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Last week we heard from voices of workers and refugees trying to keep their head above water during the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the past week, the federal government has put to Parliament the $130 billion package of public funds to keep 6 million people technically at work during the pandemic. It gives a flat rate of $150,000 a fortnight, a minimum wage, to workers on the books of companies who can prove they are experiencing a downturn of 30% because of the pandemic. Now... There are a lot of workers who aren't covered, for example, people who were casuals who were not on the books for at least 12 months at the same business, visa holders, arts and entertainment workers. There is a long list, actually. In fact, it's calculated there's at least 2 million people who will be out of work and who are not covered and may or may not be able to get the job seeker allowance, which is at a lower rate. Job seeker allowance is the new name for New Start. Obviously, New Start has been given a lot of negative publicity, and so the government's decided to change its name. But there are lots of things going on in regards to this wage subsidy and workers' rights, which may make sense during an epidemic but may set a trend which, after six months, is up may seem problematic for workers, such as the go-ahead for employers to decide to change a worker's job, hours, rosters, location of work without consultation. In this program, we take some time to talk with Alison Pennington, Senior Economist with the Centre for Future Work, about the COVID-19 epidemic, workers and the government's response. We were talking a day before the Parliament sat to pass the LMP's rules-based plan, but Alison's analysis is uncanny in its perception. I'm very interested in your opinion about what's been going on uh, economically and for workers uh, now that the COVID-19 virus has effectively uh, produced at least a 15% obvious unemployment rate. And the government has decided on a variety of different measures uh, under pressure, actually, uh, in terms of wages subsidy. Can you talk about uh, what the government's done and what it means for workers? So I think the first point we've got to start at is this pandemic has caused a forced shutdown of large sections of the private sector. And so... In that time, you've got the forced closure of businesses, but then you've got all the secondary uh, spillover effects of once those firms shut down and then all the employment effects after. So we are uh, expe- we expect this to be a economic collapse worse than what we've seen in the um, during the depression. The difference of this time is that uh, politics and economics. Um, the terrain in which government can spend money is very different. So they can actually step in and provide basic incomes or um, stable incomes for people. And um, the desire of government is definitely to basically hold the whole economy in a hibernation pattern and be able to just reboot status quo on the other side. 
So uh, they were very reluctant to uh, even introduce a very basic wage subsidy that was being introduced across the world, um, including 80% of wages covered by government in in the UK. Um, Through a lot of pushing uh, and advocating and negotiations, uh, particularly between the unions and uh, government head up with Christian Porter, they finally came across the line, so there's the subsidy now, but they've set it at a flat rate. And so uh, in addition to some of the design problems that are coming out of this, this flat rate, there's also uh, what's very clearly being shown as a, an agenda from government and their business friends to, to force through an implementation pattern that would uh, undermine workers' rights and their ability to onto their wages rates um, on the other side of this crisis. So um, the $1,500 uh, flat rate, that's the rate that the, the wage subsidy has been set up per, per fortnight, and that's going to be available for part-time, full-time, um, sole, sole traders, self-employed people, uh, and casuals, but only casuals who have been on the job for more than 12 months. Uh, and so what by by setting these exclusionary boundaries, essentially what government has said is um, 1.1 million people in the casual realm uh, don't deserve to be covered. Their jobs matter for the purposes of keeping the economy going and, and um, pulling out the other side. And they've also closed the doors on over a million temporary migrants who, um, you know, work and contribute and are play really important roles in really critical jobs like food production and cleaning. and So those exclusions are a significant problem. Um, another key issue uh, is all in the in workers' power and the bargaining power to actually um, be able to navigate this, this subsidy and push up against um, what is clearly the weaponisation of it. So um, there are I mean, multiple problems. Um, one is that I can see that the government will use this subsidy or employers will use this subsidy to uh, basically because they have the choice who they give it to to ratchet up the hours of people who work in part-time jobs. Um, perhaps they are uh, women who are in caring roles and can only work a given number of hours. Because the, the, the rate is flat, and uh, because Porter wants to change all of the industrial laws to give employers the power to change hours of employees without having to negotiate, they can effectively load up the hours of workers in part-time roles to basically squeeze as much value of this subsidy out of workers um, and out of the public teat. Um, and they can also, uh, if these, these changes to the Fair Work Act come through tomorrow, uh, if they're voted up, uh, full-time workers can have their pay cut entirely to the subsidy rate. So it's it's pretty remarkable what we're looking at is effectively employers being able to, to shift 100% of their wages bill onto the public at the same time as being able to crawl into workplace relations and reconfigure them to pay people less um, and to overall to decrease employees' ability to push back on, on the, the worst aspects of this subsidy um, on the other side of the crisis. So they're, they're definitely the, the main issues um, that I'm seeing with the subsidy. 
So actually, the government is uh, clothing itself in in you know Superman clothes, saying that we're doing this to help everybody, but actually. Quite clearly, they know that by setting uh, uh, boundaries, like uh, you have to be on the books by uh, for twelve months, uh, even though they've been complicit in making our workforce increasingly casualised and insecure, they already knew that there were a whole lot of people who would not have been covered. Absolutely, and. You know, I've been thinking through this casual issue because when it was first announced, people were, you know, decrying everywhere that this was an oversight. And clearly, you know, it's clear you wanted to be covering all workers, especially it's, you know, there are entire industries that, that operate on short-term contract bases. Um, look at uh, academia, the university sector, a lot of the arts and entertainment sector, um, people work in food production, shift between employers. And the only, what is very clear is that the, the value of casual labour to employers is so high um, that the subsidy is basically being used to entrench employer power to use casual labour ongoing. Um, and it's interesting to look at some of the, the pushback from different sectors like uh, the university sector, which is has appallingly casualise its workforce to the tune of something like a 50% share of casual work. And now all of their, essentially most of their workforce um, cannot be covered by the public subsidy. And then you've got to ask, well, why, why, would, we, why would government be prepared to not hear the cries of even you know, peak corporate bodies like Universities of Australia to, to provide specific packages? And I think they've already done the cost-benefit and for really big corporations like the retailers, which make a lot of millions and millions of dollars um, off of the the casual casualised workforce, and then that's not to you know, not even just in dollar forms by maintaining a cheaper and more precarious labour workforce across the entire economy, it's an incredibly profitable tool to keep wages low. So you know in in a you know, the classic Marxian sense, we'd say this is the subsidies being used to, to protect the, you know, long-term profitability um, of businesses across Australia. And I think what's happening is some sectors are trying their hardest to be heard, um, but government's already made the call that politically they don't want to open up the doors, the floodgates, because uh, they don't want to disrupt they don't want to break up a good thing. And, you know, this has been a war that's been going on for some time um, where unions have been battling and battling to, to get any gains on the casual labour front and improve protections. And uh, just last year, the Fair Work Commission introduced the requirement that uh, employers hear requests for conversion of casual to permanent jobs after 12 months. So it's given that the the subsidy is cutting out people who've worked for less than 12 months with their employer. And the Fair Work Act says that employer is liable to, to make a job permanent after 12 months. I'd say it's no uh, coincidence that these two things are articulating. They're working together. The industrial relations sphere is working together with the subsidy to overall increase employer power over whether a job is permanent or casual. 
Uh, uh, just as an aside, uh, it's been pointed out to me that the Australian government spends $200 billion on uh, its uh, uh, defence spend. The amount that's been put up for this uh, bailout, as it were, is $130 billion and it's been called unprecedented. Have you got mm. anything to say about that? Yeah, well, I think the it is to, for a, a, a you know a Tory government that has built, tried very very hard to build a politics of scarcity and the idea that uh, you know we've got to hold the public purse shut because you know government debt we're just chasing this surplus um, which is you know doesn't at all play out in history to be an important goal. Um, actually, government should be spending money all the time to make sure the cogs are turning. Um, in terms of the actual the dollar figure, you know, it's neither here nor there. It doesn't matter. That public debt can just sit there. Politically, it's important. Politically, it's notable. Um, but, you know, there's two sides to this because if, if, if the government didn't spend this much, um, you know, they wouldn't be able to maintain the existing status quo relations of, you know, how our economy functions, who gets to make the choices about how we produce, who produces, and how that's distributed? Because this is what's this is what's up for play now. This is what's up and that's at risk. Is that there's an opportunity if you know if collective, everyday people had come together and, and could push back. Um, but uh, the dollar figure is neither here nor there because overall, for instance, the amount of public money that's going to be spent on bailing out the aviation industry. Um, you know, how many jets can we buy back off of Qantas uh, or Jetstar, you know, from the $5 billion that Qantas is asking for now? I mean, I'd much prefer to, to buy the jets rather than uh, just hand them the money to be able to maintain their competitive position. So this is this is the, the lie and the joke of this neoliberal politics that we've been living under for decades, which is that there isn't enough money um, and that we should hold the, the purse strings shut because um, at the same time, that money is always going out the door. And in crisis, it becomes very clear um, who has the most power because, you know, something like 75% of all of the government stimulus money is being handed straight to the business sector. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are in the middle of an extended chat with Alison Pennington, Senior Economist with the Centre for Future Work, about the COVID-19 epidemic, workers and the government's response. I mean, I know the Labor Party is saying things like it's a good thing that it's uh, these this money is being... Uh, t- uh, that the employee's money is being tied to the employer. Uh, what's your view on it? Because I had the impression of it being sort of merry master-servant sort of relationship. They were talking about it as being, uh, it's good because when this finishes, people will be able to continue working uh, and won't lose their job with their employer. Yeah, well, um, I think, like, have we started this chat, uh, we have to take into account, you know, the... The real conditions, which is that we don't have a, a great and glorious public sector full of high-wage, good union jobs where people have the right to organise, um, which you know 
is much more common, at least at a, a, at a higher level in even just the social democratic countries, um, you know, lots of Europe. The fact is, coming into this crisis, we had um, already a massive un- unemployment problem, long-term unemployment. Um, millions of people completely, uh, you know, cut out of access to basic, decent, good quality work. And... Um, heaps and heaps of shonky employers and you know when but when crisis hits and and the the options are working people you know out on their asses excuse my french you know begging um or joining the unemployment queue and losing you know atrophying their skills um you know losing their their position in the labor market which is important people build their careers it takes years and years to do so Plus, there's a lot of these skills and things that people do that we want on the other side. You know, ideally, we just want those jobs to be better, to be, be paid better, and for the conditions to be better, and for people to have more control over that work. But the, at that point in crisis, when the whole, sec, the whole economy is collapsing and jobs are being shed in there, you know, tens of thousands every day, to swoop in there and provide that floor, which is why the wage subsidy is important. So that's just the subsidy concept in itself. But uh, you know, in terms of how it's implemented, um, there's absolutely no reason why employers should be given all the power to, you know, first of all, they get to decide which employees get it or not. So that's why I predict they're going to assess their workforce. They're going to potentially sack more people because um, if they uh, if they can get the subsidy for a few people they can ratchet up their hours um, so you can squeeze more value out of them Um, full-time workers may actually be more likely to be laid off because if your salary is above $750 a week um, then the employer would be potentially liable to pay the the additional part above that between your salary and the the subsidy Um, and yeah so at every point employers have that power and also there is no mechanism that's being discussed yet about how we're going to get oversight, about what happens when that money goes into the employer's account. That's right. Um, nominally, there's supposed to be some sort of um, ATO process um, when they like look to reconcile pay, um, the, the payments. But, you know, my sources in the ATO say there's absolutely nothing in place. And so we could just see not only um, increased employer power to, to pocket this subsidy and get more control over workers and their hours they do and their wages, um, but they could also be, uh, you know, pocketing the taxes that go on that that came through in the first subsidy. And they could also not even pass on the full value of the subsidy. So um, they, could, they could be benefiting many times over. And it doesn't even go into the fact that it doesn't cover superannuation anyway. So that's another kettle of fish. Um, the mm. Yeah, that's another kettle of fish. But uh, there's also the business about, uh, throughout this, uh, the federal government's been quite uh, specific in not wanting to com- communicate with workers in implementing any plan. And this has come out, especially in the MUA, the business where they've had to force conversations and consultations about uh, health issues uh, in relation to ships that are coming in. But um, 
this, uh, the UWU has put out a discussion paper, uh, which has been very interesting in relation to COVID. One of them is they're calling for renewable energy generation uh, support for, infra for infrastructure. They're also talking about don't bail out these companies like Qantas, but buy, uh, nationalise them effectively. And uh, also, if you have to bail out necessary industries, then there should be conditions in relation to worker uh, involvement in uh, the future of those companies. Yeah, and it's a it's a brilliant platform that the UWU has put forward, and really, really timely and necessary that unions play seriously in the space of talking about you know what is the future for reconfiguring our economy to make it fairer on workers. And so I, I applaud the work of UWU to do that. Um, yeah, I, 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 in my research, I do a lot of work on what's happened to the manufacturing sector in Australia. And it's, a, it's an incredibly sad story off the back of this sort of free market fundamentalist ideology. Um, and in particular, the coalition have taken great glee in... Uh, taking the floor out of support for the sector and consequently sending off hundreds of thousands of jobs and good jobs in manufacturing, you know, covered by collective agreements, union jobs, high wage. And uh, it's, you know, completely decimated um, our manufacturing capacity. We are very vulnerable. Um, we were vulnerable before this COVID crisis because climate change is knocking on our door and we can't produce the stuff that we need to uh, prepare our economy to be to mitigate all of those risks of climate change. So there was already a dire need to rebuild our manufacturing sector. Um, and now with the, the COVID crisis, we're saying, um, you know, we can't manufacture the basic medical equipment that we need to actually make sure that all of our frontline workers have protective equipment, PPE gear. And, you know, if we're at the behest of other, you know, trade relationships, and manufacturing nations that are also putting, you know, they've got to put their, their people first. Um, you know, we're in a very vulnerable position. So I think that the, the need to rebuild the manufacturing sector in Australia um, and in particular to, to, sort, to build the renewable infrastructure that we need to motor that process. So I, I would completely uh, agree with the importance of that proposal that UWU has put forward. I think... Strategically, it's important. Economically, it's important. Um, and politically, it's, it's salient. Um, I also, um, I do like the proposals around not just talking about nationalising failed companies, which is something I've noticed. Um, I wrote a piece for Jacobin, which is a US socialist publication, um, early as the COVID crisis was developing. And I, I wanted to speak to the very real fact that people when they see crisis happening, they make the call for nationalisation. And I wanted to sort of sort of flesh out some of the risks and some of the things we want to be in place. And definitely before the state steps in to buy things back, to make sure it's not just about subsidising their losses, we want to make sure that workers in those industries have a voice and have an ability to assert themselves. Um, so one, the proposal that uh, UW put forward, um, which said basically failed businesses um, I think she said if they're failed, then they should be nationalised and workers be given an opportunity to sit 
uh, you know, in in governance of that business in some way. I would say, you know, why don't we go even further than that? Why don't we say that workers being able to, on the ground, have a voice over their, more of a voice over how their work is done and how the firm operates? Why don't we attach that governance to part ownership? Um, so, you know, obviously in the case, if these were state-owned enterprises, then they would be national ones. But let's assume that um, a certain portion of failed businesses uh, get a bit of a boost from the public and then transfer back to, to you know, private hands. Um, we're not at a point where we can build, you know, 100% state-owned enterprises. I'm not necessarily sure that would be the best, you know, mix anyway. Uh, but in uh, the UK um, election platform that Corbyn took to the election, um, there's some really good proposals that came out of that. And one of them was businesses that require public funds to uh, recuperate after a downturn or, you know, um, after their near collapse, um, they can receive support, but on the condition um, that they transfer 10% of the ownership of that firm to the workers. Um, and that's a, that was for firms with 250 employees or more. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say looking into more of those sort of proposals around how do we actually start to address the, the the cancer in a lot of the economic problems we have in this, you know, capitalist economic system is that a small number of people make choices about production and the production of things that we all need to have to survive, to consume, to have a good life. Um, why not address start addressing that key issue. Look at the investment problem, the fact that impl- that a small number of people make those choices and then they kamikaze the whole outfit, the whole economy goes down with them because they're protecting their own interests all the time. If we can start to, you know, uh, spread out some of that ownership so that people, more people have a stake in how that thing runs, whether that be, you know, healthcare or education or a manufacturing firm, um, I think that starts to actually make societies a little bit more stable and democratic, of course. That's it for Stick Together this week. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne. It is made possible through the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation and we come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. This podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together and stay safe. <laughs>